0: Here we go. You're listening to Sounds Good, the podcast that makes your sound sound good. When I studied at the School of Audio Engineering a few years ago, our teacher told us, from now on you no longer simply like or dislike the music of the Beatles, instead you will acknowledge them for what they have meant for music and recording technology. A co-worker of mine had just visited the Beatles Museum in Liverpool, UK. And said it was just the kind of thing I would enjoy. So a few weeks ago I booked a trip to Liverpool and went to see the Beatles Museum. Back home I started listening to some Beatles tunes with fresh ears and also read about some of the things they did. And that's what this episode of the Sounds Good podcast is all about. We will look at some of the accomplishments of the Beatles and how we can take those concepts into the 21st century. But I will start by telling you a bit about my little holiday to Liverpool. On Tuesday October the 27th I flew to Liverpool. I had booked a room in the Hard Day's Night Hotel, which is of course the perfect place to stay when you're visiting the Beatles Liverpool. When I switched on the TV in the room I heard... The next day I walked to the Albert Dock, where the Beatles Museum is located. The Beatles Museum is actually called the Beatles Story, which is very appropriate. When you enter the museum, you start with the early days of skiffle music when John Lennon was in a band called the Quarry Man. The tour then continues from the early Beatles days through the Cavern Club, where they performed live, right to the screaming fans, the long and winding breakup of the band, and the solo careers of the men that once were in the most famous band in rock history. Later that day I went to see Liverpool in a guided tour bus, called, of course, the Magical Mystery Tour. It was a great way to see the various places where the Beatles had once lived and found their inspiration. Here's a fragment which I recorded when we had stopped to see Strawberry Fields.
1: As it did close down a few years ago to Children's Home, well it, it recently reopened as a 24 hour 7 day week prayer centre and Salvation Army staff training centre, again it's recently closed down. Uh, we're not sure what's going to happen to the grounds as yet, although the Salvation Army have stated they would love it to be something revolving around children, but one thing that has been done, a preservation order has been put on the surrounding wall, the pillars and the gates, so no matter what happens to the grounds in future, what you can see here will actually be Strawberry Field forever.
0: If you have the means, why not go and see the city where popular music more or less started. There's a lot to see and read and listen to even if you don't make it all the way to Liverpool. For starters, the entire Beatles catalogue has just been remastered by engineers from the same studio where all their music was recorded, Abbey Road. Remastering the Beatles was of course a very challenging job. When we did the limiting, we would then level correct that with the original capture and listen for any artifacts, make sure there was no pumping or anything odd happening, explains Guy Messi. We purely used that as a level gain stage, as it were, so the loudest song's loudest part would be limiting a little bit, but the rest of it would just be level correction. This is a quote from an article in Sound on Sound magazine from the October 2009 issue. You can read the entire article if you become an e subscriber of Sound on Sound magazine. Wikipedia also has lots of information about the Beatles and the way they use recording technology. There's a link in the show notes to get you started. Another place to listen to just about every Beatles song, but maybe not in the best sonic quality, is YouTube. Whenever I read about a certain Beatles track during the preparation of this episode, I could always find a reference track on YouTube. Later during this episode, we will look at another interesting documentary that's also available on YouTube. iTunes has many interesting things on The Beatles. We can find several Beatles related podcasts such as The Beatles Podcast, Pop Go The Beatles The Show, John Lennon The Lost Lennon Tapes and The Beatle Briefs Podcast. On the plane to Liverpool, I also listened to a great course on iTunes U called The Beatles Popular Music and Society. Like any port city, Liverpool was a place where diverse musical influences converged. Sounds from distant places would arrive there first, and at time the most interesting sounds were coming from America. Soul, rhythm and blues, and country records in particular. 39 episodes from Professor Michael Cheney from the University of Illinois Springfield, all free for you to listen to. A very interesting book is the Complete Beatles Recording Sessions by Mark Lubison, which you can find on Amazon. It's the perfect bit of geek information on the Beatles' recording sessions, covering the recording, mixing and release of the Beatles songs from the demos in 1962 to Phil Spector's reworking of Let It Be in 1970. It lists how each song was recorded, credits for session musicians and comments from producer George Martin, engineers Geoff Emmerich, Norman Smith, Glyn Johns and Alan Parsons. I'll read a quote or two from this book later in this episode. The last bit of information you might find interesting is to be able to find the chords for most of the Beatles songs. Some of their chord progressions are very innovative. I was able to find a PDF with the chords and sheet music for most of their songs on the internet. This PDF seems to be a legitimate freeware file, so I'll put a link into the show notes to DocStock where you can download this file. It doesn't tell you everything, though. For instance, there's been much debate about the opening chord of A Hard Day's Night. The non-definitive answer to this question can be found in one of my favorite books, How Music Really Works by Wayne Chase. It says, What did Dr. Brown find? George Harrison played the notes D, A, C and G on his 12-string Rickenbacker electric guitar. Paul McCartney played the note D on his bass. George Martin played the notes D, F, E, and G on the piano. John Lennon may have played the note C on his six string guitar. Put them together and you get D, F, A, C, E, G, which is the chord D minor eleventh, which is the same as the chord D minor and the chord C major, played simultaneously. There's a link to this book's website in the show notes. George Martin and the Beatles were always pushing the limits of recording technology. They had to because a lot of it hadn't been invented yet. As I look at myself, swamped with a billion synthesizers and even more presets to choose from, I often wonder if I'm ever pushing my own limits. I don't even have enough time to try out what's already at my disposal. At the end of this episode, we will look at some ways to impose artificial limitations on ourselves. One of the things we learned from the Lewison book is the sheer amount of songs and versions of songs that the Beatles and George Martin created. Most of their work has never been heard by the public. John Lennon even thought the best of the Beatles was probably only heard by a small group of people early on in their career. Our best
2: work was never recorded, you know.
0: Because we were,
2: we were performers, in spite of what Mick says about us, in Liverpool, Hamburg, and around the dance halls, you know, and what we generated was fantastic when we played straight rock. And there was nobody to touch us in Britain, you know, but as soon as we made it, we made it. The, 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 the edges were knocked out. You know, Brian put us in suits and all that, and we made it very, very big, but we sold out, you know. And the
0: music was dead before we even went on the theatre tour of Britain. The combination of experimenting and pushing the limits brings out the best in each of us. Here's a quote from the Paul McCartney interview in Lewison's book. He's a
1: real man, in his land,
0: we were always forcing them into things they didn't want to do. Nowhere man was one. I remember we wanted very trebly guitars, which they are. They are among the most treble guitars I've ever heard on a record. The engineer said, Alright, I'll put full treble on it. And we said, That's not enough. And he said, But that's all I've got. I've only got one fader and that's it. And we replied, Well, put that through another lot of faders and put full treble up on that. And if that's not enough, we'll go through another lot of faders. So we were always doing that, forcing them. They said, We don't do that. And we would say, Try it. Just try it for us. If it sounds crappy, Okay, we'll lose it but it just might sound good. We were always pushing ahead, louder, further, longer, more, different. I always wanted things to be different because we knew that people generally always want to move on and if we hadn't pushed them the guys would have stuck by the rule books and still been wearing ties. When it worked out great they were secretly glad because they had been the engineer who'd put three times the loud value of treble on the song. I think they were quietly proud of all those things. Pushing the limits of recording technology sometimes means inventing new ways of doing existing things. You can even turn a problem into an art form. Audio feedback in which a high-pitched electric noise can be heard... ...was used by composers such as Robert Ashley in the early 60's. Ashley's The Wolfman, which uses feedback extensively, was composed early in 1964, though not heard publicly until the autumn of that year. Recorded in the same year as Ashley's feedback experiments, the Beatles song I Feel Fine starts with a feedback note produced by plucking the A string on McCartney's bass guitar, which was picked up on Lennon's semi-acoustic guitar. Some of the things the Beatles did are more subtle than feedback. For instance, one of the techniques I find very intriguing myself is the use of an echo that suddenly stopped, 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 stopped. We can be pretty certain that the Beatles used a tape echo in Paperback Writer and either pulled the fader down on the feedback or just muted the entire vocal track. Let's listen to it. You can hear that the echoes also go through a reverb unit to bind it all together perfectly. Paperback Writer writer is also interesting for historic reasons because it was the first Beatles song where the bass is almost a lead instrument. Some of the things we find all too common today were quite unheard of back in the 1960's. Even with cellos and violins Paul McCartney and Geoff Emerick wanted to get a sound different from any previous recording. The secret was in the microphone technique. On Eleanor Rigby we mic'd very very close to the strings, almost touching them says Emerick. No one had really done that before. <laughs> If you need some inspiration to go where no musician has gone before, electronic music lets you do just that. Longtime listeners of this podcast may know that I'm a huge fan of Reactor by native instruments. Because Reactor lets you construct your own sound machines, there are still lots of unexplored sounds to discover. For some examples of how far you can go with Reactor, search for the live performances of Tim Exile on YouTube. I'll put a few links in the show notes. One artist that's always pushing the boundaries of music is Si Here's a short part of his song The Bleeps. Just listen to the extreme sounds and edits that are at least a decade into the future. used existing technologies with great confidence. Things like reverb, tape echo and tape editing of course already existed and the Beatles excelled in using what was already at their disposal. For instance all four of them experimented at home with tape loops. A song like Tomorrow Never Knows is not that much different from a 21st century breakbeat tune. On Do You Want To Know A Secret, I find the reverb on the vocals, especially the background harmonies, very smooth. Because this song was recorded in 1963, it's probably one of the Abbey Road Life Chambers that was used to create this reverb. The Beatles did use EMT 140 plate reverbs, but that's later in their career. Let's listen to the reverb on Do You Want To Know A Secret. Beatles were very well versed in tape editing. The actual cutting of tape was the only way to copy and paste back in the old analog days. A good example of a few daring edits can be found in strawberry fields forever. I'll quote from an article by Joe Brennan from the Columbia University. A link to his entire story can be found in the show notes. What I have called the big edit, the cross from take 7 to take 26, occurs at one minute into the song. This is at the second refrain, where we hear from take 7
1: Let me take you down I'm
0: and then go into take 26 for
1: going
0: to It's a daring edit that depends in part on the way John's vocal line wanders during going to and in part on the instruments coming back in after a pause during cause I'm. Considering also that the takes are at different tempos and keys, Makes it all the more amazing that most of us need to be told where the edit is. I know I did. So did you hear there was another edit just before Let Me Take You Down? These kinds of tape edits were typically made with an EMI tape jointing block. When I visited Liverpool I saw one of those jointing blocks on the open reel recorder that's part of the Abbey Road replica in the Beatles Story Museum. The angle at which these edits were made was typically something like 45 degrees, to avoid pops and clicks. We can even see these edits when we look at the stereo waveform with software. The left channel, which is the top one on the quarter inch tape, would start earlier than the right channel, due to the angled edit. At 45 degrees with quarter inch tape, mathematics tells us that the left channel is also a quarter inch earlier than the right channel. So if the machine was running at 15 inch per second, which was quite common for the Beatles recordings, at 44k sampling rate we would see an edit at the left channel about 735 samples earlier than at the right channel, which is exactly what we see in a waveform view of strawberry fields forever. You can see this in the picture that accompanies this enhanced podcast. During the 1980s and the first half of the 1990s, these two track edits were quite popular. As an example, listen to this version of Talk About Rockin' by The Two Girls, edits by Omar Santana. You can always add some excitement to your productions by introducing some of those 2-track edits, edits, edits. It's much easier these days with digital copying and pasting compared to the razor blade edits the Beatles performed on 2-track reel-to-reel recorders. Nevertheless, I wondered if it would be easy to get a sense of old-school tape editing back by simulating angled edits in the digital domain. I understand this is a bit geeky, but if you're a Pro Tools user, you might even learn a cool trick you didn't know before. So hang in there, this won't take long. We start with a stereo track in Pro Tools LE. We perform some edits in grid view. Without any treatment, these digital edits would be the equivalent of straight edits perpendicular on the tape. Now we create two mono tracks to simulate a tape machine. We separate our edited bar markers using Apple E and drag the bar of edits to the two mono audio tracks. We adjust the panning for the two mono tracks so the upper one plays in the left channel and the lower one plays in the right channel. If we would play this back, we wouldn't hear any difference yet. We will now set our nudge value at 100 samples. We select all our edits in the upper or left channel and nudge our regions 7 times to the left. This is easily done with numlock enabled and pressing the numeric minus key 7 times. As was to be expected, the upper regions are now moved back in time 700 samples. With the same selection, we now press Ctrl minus 7 times. This moves the audio within regions without moving the region boundaries. To avoid the worst clicks, we select all our edits in both channels and press F. This adds a crossfade to each and every edit. If we zoom in, this now looks pretty much like an angled tape edit would look. It also sounds more like it. This way we can easily make our digital edits sound more like they were made 50 years ago. Another existing technology the Beatles used a lot was the reversal of sound. In the old days of tape machines this involved physically reversing tape in some way or the other. These days we can digitally reverse audio which makes it much easier. Still this technique isn't used that much while it can really work wonders in building tension or accentuating. So let us first look at some of the things the Beatles did and then look at some of the more modern uses of reversed sounds. And no, we won't be resurrecting any demons by reversing some sounds. Some of the drums in Strawberry Fields go backwards while the other tracks move forward. These reversed drums certainly add to the strangeness of the song.
2: As I think it's not too bad.
0: The Beatles had decided to adorn I'm Only Sleeping with the sound of backwards guitars. There are two ways of recording backwards instruments. One easy, one difficult. The easy way is to play the instrument normally and then turn the tape around. The other involves working out the notation forwards, writing it out backwards, then playing it as the notation says, so that it comes out back to front. This way, although the sound still has the oral attraction of a backwards tape, the instrument is actually playing a melodic run of the notes. The Beatles of course chose the latter alternative, hence this near 6 hour session for just the guitar overdub. Joff Emmerich recalls that this was all George Harrison's idea and that he did the playing. This technique reminded me of what David Lynch did in the Twin Peaks series.
1: Why you see me again, he should be
0: me. In the Black Lodge scene, for example, we can hear how everyone is talking backwards, while we can still understand everything as English language. I'll see you again and see this is much the same as what George Harrison did in I'm Only Sleeping. Let's listen to the same scene reversed.
1: U-isla.
0: There's all kinds of weird and wonderful things we can do with reversed sounds. For instance, in this case I have added reverb to my reversed voice and then reversed the result again. A reversed snare drum or bass drum can give great accents. Here's an example. The Beatles and many of their generation had to deal with severe technical and financial limitations. It's clear how track counts, effects and choice of instruments are almost limitless on even the cheapest machines these days. We also have the freedom of unlimited undo, backup, copy and paste, quantization and sampling. But when the Beatles recorded Yellow Submarine in 1966, they didn't have a sampler. Nevertheless, the brass solo in that song was never played as such by a brass band. In fact, these are all tape edits. Every sound in this brass solo is a piece of tape. Even more staggering in this respect is the Doctor Who theme song from 1963, which consists almost entirely of tape edits. The bassline, which still sounds futuristic even in 2010, was constructed with electronic oscillators and pieces of tape. The woman who did all the hard work was Delia Derbyshire. In 1963, Ron Grainer was asked to compose the theme tune to the Doctor Who series that began late that year. As part of the BBC's radiophonic workshop, Derbyshire developed Grainer's written notes into the version that was then used on the original show. Grainer was so amazed by her rendition of his notes that he attempted to get her a co composer credit, but this was prevented by the BBC, who preferred to keep the members of the workshop anonymous. Derbyshire's original Doctor Who theme is one of the first television themes to be created and produced by entirely electronic means. If you find these kinds of stories interesting, there's a great BBC documentary called The Alchemists of Sound, which you can see on YouTube. One thing about
2: any any definition of golden age, for me, comes also within music, comes within art, comes within literature. It is the point where the desires of the creator are greater than the technology which is available. There comes a moment where the technology gets closer and closer to the sort of imagination creativity of the writer and in the end if you're not careful it overtakes and suddenly serendipity which before was from your own sweat and blood but you created something thought goodness me that's great serendipity comes by saying if I press one of these 397 buttons on this synthesizer maybe I'll get something out of it now at that moment the machinery is driving the creativity and the creativity is not driving the machinery and maybe
0: that's where the golden age stops Maybe. At times when you feel like the software is controlling you rather than vice versa, why not limit yourself? For that next project use only 4 audio tracks. Pretend there are no bus sends. Start and finish in GarageBand. Work without a grid. Mix it down to mono. Record everything live. Don't use any presets. Limit the effects you can use to a single band EQ and a compressor or impose an artificial time limit, see what you come up with. You can always revisit these sessions and make refinements, but start out by recording a song beginning to end in, say, one day. The Beatles recorded 10 songs for their first album in no more than 585 minutes on Monday, February the 11th of 1963. If they could do that, we should at least be able to record a song in one day. For a change, I've recorded my voice for this episode on my brand new Zoom H4n recorder. It's quite an amazing little recorder, which I'm using for field recordings. The built-in microphones of the Zoom H4n are excellent and record a beautiful stereo image with their 19 or 120 degrees XY configurations. All the ambient sounds I've mixed into this episode of the Sounds Good podcast were recorded with the Zoom H4n. The microphone I used for my voice was the trusted MXL V67i, phantom powered by the Zoom. All the music I played in this episode falls under fair use, and all the fragments were only used to augment the text. I quoted from several sources, all of which can be found in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and good luck with your own limitations and experimentations and in the legendary words of John Lennon. I'm an artist, and if
2: you give me a tuba, I'll bring you something out of it. Uh, We recorded everything, and then we played about with it, with with whatever we had at that
1: time, which was fairly crude, really. When a composer writes for an orchestra, he knows what sound colors are available to him, and he knows the best way to use them. But in electronic music, the basic sound material must first be discovered, and then research made to find out what these sounds can do we must find the pitch range they sound best in and how fast or slow we can make them move. Most of my work has been in conventional musical forms. The only unusual aspect has been the qualities of the sound. We have used sounds like hitting a beer bottle or the whistle of air escaping from a bottle opener. Now all these sounds are naturally only at one pitch but they can be transposed by playing the tape at different speeds. The higher the speed, the higher the pitch and vice versa. Having made a tape of sounds at correct pitch, we measure each note and cut the tape into the correct rhythm. The intensity of each sound must be controlled to impose accents and phrasing. In fact, each aspect of composition must be analyzed and all the quantities must be assessed. Here as an example is the opening music for Suive La Piste. It is scored for alto, flute, double bass and treated bottle sounds.